Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Okay, welcome back from your weekends. Uh, this is our Monday Scramble. Um, a little bit later in the show, we'll talk about the mini blackout in New York with two exciting young correspondents. Uh, and we'll also talk about how it relates to and, and occurred on the anniversary of the 1977 Maxi Blackout. And then at the end of the show, uh, Dave Zirin from The Nation is going to join us, a great sports writer, uh, going to talk about why baseball is losing audience and what can be done, uh, if anything, to save baseball. But right now, um, we have a, a Connecticut journalism legend in the studio right now with me, John Lender, a Hartford Current investigative reporter who writes the weekly Government Watch column. And we're going to be talking about the Connecticut Lottery Corporation. So I think what we need to do is to, before we get to the latest developments, which you've been breaking over the last two weeks in your column, we need to sort of set this up because not everybody understands this story. So I'm going to try to set it up and you're going to just keep telling me I got it wrong or whatever. I appreciate you doing this, by okay. the way. Okay. So I think it goes back to 2015, 2016. And so what happens eventually is that Ann Noble, who's the CEO of the Connecticut Lottery Corporation. And John, let's pause here and talk about what the Connecticut Lottery Corporation is. It's not a state agency, but it's also not not a state agency. Yeah, it's a quasi-public. And I write about these things and you talk about them. They they're, they're have all the powers and abilities of, of state agencies, but more independence to run themselves. And, you know, the well, the cliche is we'll run it like a business. Mm-hmm. And what comes with that is a lack of accountability on things like freedom of information. And Although uh, they so are subject to, to FOI. Right? They are, but yeah. they just uh, don't always <laughs> they don't do know what they're, they're supposed to, to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them are worse than others. Right. So that's what the Connecticut Lottery Corporation is. They're the wonderful people who bring you all your scratchy tickets and your all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, they are nominally anyway, sort of a state agency. So there's a big investigation, 2015, 2016. Uh, there's a, been a breach in the lottery software that allowed lottery agents to manipulate terminals to produce more winning lottery tickets, which is a pretty significant problem. Uh, and it turns out that Ann Noble, then the CEO of the Connecticut Lottery Corporation, knew about this for a while and didn't really tell it. I mean, she kept it inside the agency that, uh, that for a long time, I mean, this kind of thing you'd want your superiors in the state government to know and maybe the public, but they didn't tell anybody, right? They, she would argue with that, but, and she did not, you know, stand on the rooftop and, and, and tell the public that this was going on. And so this boomeranged on her mm-hmm. because you have um, the Department of Consumer Protection, which is the regulator mm-hmm. of the lottery. The, the D- Department of Consumer Protection started looking into it. And they said, hey, you know, this stuff has been going on for a while. And you know, the great thing about that, that scandal with five-card cash was the, the uh, ingenuity of the, of the lottery agents at the convenience mm-hmm. stores. They had a way of overloading the, the computer system with, you know, how do you get from Enfield to, uh, you know, to, to Rocky Hill or whatever. Anything, any instruction that would slow it down. Mm-hmm. So they could actually they, – and they had a readout for what the last sale was mm-hmm. except – They'd get the readout uh, before the ticket came out, so they could see 
if it was a winner. Right. And they'd let it come out if it was a winner, and they'd pay for it and put it aside. And if it was a loser, they'd just cancel the transaction. It was really an interesting thing. And it, so when we say ingenuity, it's not necessarily ingenuity. No, it's like prove cr- of. It's yeah. not like Thomas. No, no, criminal. Yeah. Criminal, criminal ingenuity. Yeah, 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 criminal right. ingenuity. Okay, yeah. so just to like keep going Lex here. Lex Luthor. So eventually, uh, Noble, because of all this, she resigns. But then there's another she problem. She would dispute that, too. She th- had you know other places she wanted to be. Okay, you know, so but, she yeah. can travel more or whatever. But yeah, right. this horrible thing has happened. She winds up resigning. Um, and actually, the chairman of the state lottery board at that point, Frank Farriker, mm-hmm. even says at one point that he's trying to, in a, in a confidential memo, that he's trying to keep the state investigation uh, into the scandal-plagued lottery game under wraps. Uh, while the game, while the board is negotiating, words. yep, uh, the controversial and lucrative severance package <laughs> you know. with with CEO and the I know how many times do I lose use that word, but yeah. So yeah. so what you've got is the CEO is resigning. She's yep. getting. I, I don't know if she would dispute this part. She's getting a terrific deal for somebody who's resigning in less than glorious circumstances. It, it was amazing, and she needed four months to get to 10 years, which is a big um, you know, milestone for your retirement yeah. benefits. And so they put her in this uh, arrangement where she was an employee of the board. It had never been done before. you know, And it kept her on the payroll as kind of a hybrid consultant employee. I don't, right. and, and anyway, she- So, yeah, so after she hits yeah. that, that vestiture, yeah. she, she, for months thereafter, yeah. For like twenty, twenty-five grand a month. That's right. She's a consultant. Yep. Once again, whatever she might say about this, this is not a person who's resigning at the top of her game. This is a person who's re- resigning at the time where one of the lotter- lottery's games has had to be pulled offline. Yeah, it's, it had to be. It had to be canceled. Yeah, it had That's to be right. a whole. The whole game had to be scrapped because yep. it was so completely tainted. Uh, all right. So uh, then. Uh, Frank Farriker, who is the uh, unpaid chairman of the Board of Trustees, steps into an interim job, her old job. Mm-hmm. And so he's both the board chairman mm-hmm. of, the, of the governing board and now the CEO. Right. And a couple of things happen. One of them is it turns out he's actually kind of interested in this high-paying CEO, you know, 200. Yeah, he was 200, trying to yeah. – behind the scenes he was trying to get the job. Right. That's right. And then also another problem is <laughs> he's billing the state for all this stuff like his – I don't know, his, his cable well, package. And yeah, he was saying, you know, I need my, I'm working from home a lot and I'm helping the, the, the state and I need my uh, internet, you know, internet cable. Yeah, but I can't get the internet without, you know, yeah. all this other stuff, without right. the cable TV. Yeah, so yeah. it's the bundling. It's the bundling. Yeah, we all yeah, have yeah, that problem, you know? <laughs> so, he didn't want Hulu. I know, he it just was part of what he needed to be a CEO. Anyway, he got in trouble for it. He had to pay a $5,000 fine and make. No, know, thousands, well, thousands, thousands of dollars restitution. restitution yeah. yeah, it was the total was like eleven thousand. Oh, good. Something. You got that yeah. in front of you. So yeah, I've been I've been putting together a timeline. Okay, so so this is where my timeline stops, and you have to pick up the the story from there. So there's, I mean, so now they've got a new CEO who wants to turn things around, but there's still all this stuff still from the past yeah. percolating around, and that's where well, you come I, in. I have to introduce. Um, an, another name, All right. Alfred Dupuy. Oh yeah, Dupuy. yeah, forget about him. Yeah, yeah, and um, security chief. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And a, a big job, like one of the top executives there, one hundred thirty-nine thousand dollars a year. And you know, after everything that came before that, you just we just talked about um, on January first of twenty eighteen, there was a, a New Year's super draw drawing, where you know, for some odd reason. They number the tickets, not 00001. Somebody had the idea years ago that um, it would make 
the game seem more popular if they started with ticket 100,000 and won. <laughs> so there was a group, and, and so they had about, I don't know, a dozen, I think the, it was number 14, I think it was. They're, they're periodic, mm. uh, like six months at a time. And for this drawing, the people who did the drawing, and they, they, have, to, they have to punch the, the range of numbers into what's this computer box called a random number generator. And because it started at 100,001, the upper range, they take the number of tickets that were sold, and I can't really recall exactly how many there were. It was a couple hundred thousand at least. And what they had to do when they put in the range of numbers for the computer brain to uh, select the winners from, they're supposed to, at the top, take the number of tickets sold and add 100,000. Mm-hmm. Well, they forgot to do that. Right. And so very so, soon— So basically, half of the, roughly half of roughly, the tickets yeah. that were bought were right. never considered right. as, uh, by the computer at, to be randomly chosen. Yeah, yeah. I'd hate to have been the person whose responsibility it was who noticed, hey, there are no, no winners up in the upper range. And they knew right away what had happened. Anyway, so it was— it's a long story. I'll try to make it short. They just they had to do a, a do-over lottery, mm-hmm. uh, which and they had different options they could have done. They could have had, theoretically, just another lottery drawing just for the 100,000 people who were excluded, but they didn't do that. They, they did it, a whole new drawing, uh, two weeks later, and there were repercussions because of this. Uh, several people who were actually the people who did the drawing the programming of the number generator got suspended and um, Fred Dupuy who um, actually ran the second drawing and it it went off without a hitch um, got a disciplinary letter in mid-February of that year and said you're on a a paid leave and you can come back you're supposed to you're you're ordered to come back uh, a week later and face discipline up to and including termination and he didn't come back he Mm -hmm. never came back he um, just took leave, you know, family leave, whatever, sick leave, and mm. used up all his leave. And then November that year, he ended up um, retiring. He was old enough to. And uh, anyway, he, in the midst of the, in the midst of uh, his leaves, he filed a, a complaint with the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities, and that led to hearings that are still going on now that were going on last week. So, you know. I was just going to – I have to update the story. I was just going to go and mm. go to two hearings last week, Tuesday and Wednesday. You know, all right, something's going to come out of that, and I can work on other things that are you know, more effort, and I can just let this thing happen in front of me, and I'll update the story. And then what happens is um, – well, two things. Frank Farrakar testifies in the morning, and he testifies in support of Fred Dupuis' claim that he's being uh, – they have a vendetta against him for revelations behind the scenes he made with the five-card cash problem. The, the, the lottery denies that, and Chelsea Turner denies that. And Chelsea Turner, by the New way – New character. A, New character, Chelsea Turner. Oh, yeah, thanks. Chelsea Turner is the vice president of the lottery, hmm. and she actually worked in the REL uh, governor's office for about a year at the same time as Ann Noble. So like nine years ago – when the rel administration was ending and everybody over there needed a job, Ann Noble, who by now, by then had become the executive director and CEO, at, not executive director, CEO president at the lottery, um, created a position and, and took her in. And, you know, she was had skills as a lobbyist and, and at, at the Capitol. And she was like the, ended up being like the director of legislative affairs. Anyway, mm-hmm. so now Chelsea 
survived all through these years of, of, of turmoil. And now she's the uh, vice president of the lottery, 190,000. 90, yeah, 190,000. Uh, it's a good job, lottery. 190K. Yeah, 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 excellent. So anyway, Farrakhan, the former chairman and CEO who wanted to, that job himself um, but didn't end up getting it, testifies in the morning uh, that last Tuesday that um, Fred Dupuis is correct when he says that uh, Chelsea Turner want to get rid of him. And he mm-hmm. said that, you know, I think he said the first day I was on the job at as the interim CEO, uh, she came to me and said, Fred's got to go for this mm-hmm. reason, not a team player or whatever. And, um, and he remembered it because he'd seen something on his cable t- TV that day that he could, <laughs> yeah. he could peg to it. Yeah. All right, continue. And, and anyway, so um, Chelsea comes on um, in, in, in the afternoon and her attorney, you know, redirects or whatever, and and uh, and she says that that just um, never happened, you know, and and I never trusted Frank Farrakhan. I don't trust. I didn't trust him then. I I don't trust him now. You know, so, um, and the the attorney said, well, you know, when you had these suspicions and you thought he had like tried to, you know, do unethical <clears throat> things, uh, you know. Who did you report it to? Did you report it to the State Ethics Commission? This mm. is the place that you're supposed to report things. And she said, no. Um, you know, he was the now the boss of my boss's boss. This is at a time when Ann Noble was still mm-hmm. the, the So Frank Farragher would have been, been chairman of the board, chairman of the yeah, board. Yeah, chairman of the board, this, yeah, at, at that time. And she said, so I, I, I didn't uh, do that. I, I talked with some members of the board, and the, whether she talked with them individually or as a – it was mostly individually, I guess – but anyway, then the attorney for Fred Dupuy, Eric Brown, says, well, apart from talking to these board members, did you talk to anyone else about your suspicions of the nefarious, alleged nefarious behavior? She said, yes. And he said, well, who? And uh, she says, the FBI. Now here, you know, <laughs> I'm used to these things droning on. <laughs> you know, when, when people think of any court proceeding, if you've, if you've never covered court, if you've never, this is an administrative proceeding, but it's, 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 Quasi, well, I hate to use that word again, but judicial, um, you know. They're very it, boring. They're not like Perry Mason. No. You know, and and uh, so anyway, this actually was a Perry Mason moment, right? Yeah. And now I start, whoa, I, I got to listen to this. And um, and he says, the FBI, how, wh- how what? She says, well, I have this friend in the FBI and, and uh Special Agent uh, Jennifer Burry, um, who works for the FBI in Connecticut, and I went to college with her. So I felt like it was a safe space to go to. That's what she said, a safe space. And, um, you know, rather than risking repercussions inside, whatever. So she went there. It's very, you know, I tried to get her to clarify it afterwards, and she didn't really want to say any more about it once the, it was in a break during the hearing. So what she testified to is, and I, I don't know if we have all the dots here, was that Jennifer Burry, the um, FBI agent she went to, who her friend, put her in touch with a, another agent. And then further questions from Brown, the attorney. She says, yeah, well, I wasn't the only one either. Oh, who else? Ann Noble did, went, went to the FBI too. And it turned out um, that she, in effect, wore a wire. She said wiretapped, but we figured, you know, it came out that it was, it was funner than that. Well, it was, it was, it was, 
it was she went and saw Q and got like some special thing. It was a yeah, that's right. It was an eyeglass case, Hmm. and you know, on Tuesday, briefly, she had her eyeglass case with her, and she said it was a case like this. Hmm. And I'm just trying to keep track of everything, right? And I realized afterwards, why didn't I take a picture of that, right? Yeah. And um, but luckily, the next day, Hmm. on Wednesday, I went back and she had it with her. And so her, this is an eyeglass case with a microphone inside it. Yeah, the, yeah. Well, yeah. Either a mic, yeah, or microphone, maybe, maybe even maybe a little a recorder. I don't. Yeah. No, no. Just, that was it. And, yeah, it's a microphone. And, okay. And so, Ann Noble uh, had a meeting, at least one meeting, with Frank Farriker, and presumably asked him questions that would whatever she suspected him of, um, he would talk about. But it and it had to, the things that raised Chelsea Turner's suspicions were, um, you know, a, a deal. That uh, that, that Farrakhan had the lottery make with the um, Mohegan Sun, some promotional deal, um, and that that Farrakhan had ordered her, who handled all the lobbying with the uh, uh, with the legislature. They can't really call it lobbying because you're not if quasi publics can't have a lobbyist. But you know, trying Mm -hmm. to get on Kino uh, told her hands off that. And um, so that made her suspicious, and so it's, it's but it went all, nowhere. Basically, the FBI we, investigation went nowhere. Right? It, it appears not to. As as we we know. don't know who no. else might have, how many times Farrakhan might have been recorded, who else might have been recorded. We don't know the context for the FBI interest in it. I mean, lots of times you have a, a full blown or a, you know yeah a, a we investigation. That, we should know? say that you can you can get that kind of recording permission without full probable cause because because one party agrees to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was surprised to see that, but yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah it's called uh, consensual monitoring. Right. If one one of the parties is. So anybody you're talking to for the rest of the day, for the rest of your life, they might be you know, have a microphone inside their glasses case. That's right. We've, I've got a lot of jokes around the office in the last couple of days. <laughs> they wouldn't have to go to a judge or anything. I mean, it seems to me, John, we're talking to John Linder, investigative reporter for the Hartford Current. I mean, it's, it's hard to say what all this is other than a continuation of this long-running, highly dysfunctional uh, uh, situation. We should say it. There is a new CEO. Well, we, there was Ann Noble. Mm-hmm. Ann Noble resigned. Um, and, and and then briefly, Frank Farrakhan was the acting uh, mm-hmm. CEO. And after uh, Farrakhan quit, uh, then for, I don't know, eight months or so, or a few months anyway, Chelsea Turner was the acting, 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 acting interim director. Yeah. And now there's Greg Smith, who's now running the thing. Let's uh, let's hear how Greg Smith uh, sees the future, uh, the glorious future of the Connecticut uh, Lottery Corporation. My goal as a new leader of this organization is to reestablish positive cooperation with the Department of Consumer Protection, the legislators, the administration, and our key vendors. The Connecticut Lottery has been an effective and efficient source of funding for the state for almost 50 years. Uh, Last year, we returned about $345 million to the state and are ahead of that pace for this current fiscal year. So, you know, one theme that I think has emerged here, there are a few themes that have emerged in your reporting, John. One of them is that at the Connecticut Lottery Corporation, they kind of do whatever they want to do as opposed to whatever the rules would be. And I mean, a few instances of this, when Ann Noble did retire and got this incredible sweetheart deal where money was trickled towards her so she could get up to the point of retirement vestiture, and then this like extra, you know, consulting contract piled on top of that, the state auditors, who are often of 
voice of sanity and clarity in situations like this. They went nuts. They said this this is part of a pattern where people resign under less than ideal circumstances and yet get all kinds of things that are special favors. And and one thing they pointed out was there's something called the State Retirement Commission where you can you can check out what whether what you're doing makes any sense or not or whether it conforms to rules and guidelines. But they don't bother to do that. And now here's Chelsea Turner. She thinks that there's something wrong with a former acting director, chairman of the board. She could go to the, as you said, the Ethics Commission. She could go to the auditors. There's a lot of places she could go. You don't freaking call the FBI up just because you've got this idea. Not uh, normally. Yeah. I mean, as a matter of fact, Smith, the day after the story of what we've been talking about hit the paper, actually put out a memo to all employees and said, you know, it has come up that there's some things that were reported. You know, and he talked about two former uh, lottery people, Frank Farker and Ann Noble, didn't name him. He said nothing about Chelsea, who, like, according to her testimony, had a, a, a critical role in, in uh, what happened. But he said, Here's the, here are the people you go to if you, if you have some wrongdoing you want to report. State Ethics Commission, the ethics officer, et cetera. You know, n- none of them, none of the places he, he said were uh, the FBI, you know, were, were Ann Noble and uh, Chelsea Turner uh, apparently went. So here you have, you know, you wouldn't normally think a bureaucratic um, quasi-public would be an ideal setting for a, a soap opera. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's more a melodrama than a, a drama, really. So uh, as we begin to wrap up this incredibly complicated story, although it's going to consume the next couple of years of John's life, but, I mean, <laughs> the rest of us can go back to our business. But, I mean, I think you've got a few problems here. One of them is, you know, in terms of really out-and-out out malfeasance, other than way back in 2015 where it turns out that these retail agents have figured out a way to game the game, you know, I mean, th- that was wrong. They were doing something wrong. It's what we have here are perhaps some people who don't trust each other, people who have suspicions of one another. But it seems like it's been more incompetence and backbiting and stuff. I mean, I, I don't see anywhere else in here proof that somebody's. I see suspicions, but it's like it seems like a really unhealthy office culture where nobody trusts anybody else. Yeah, I mean, um, Governor Lamont, for in his first comment on it, said he was concerned by the continual or uh, dysfunctional uh, mm-hmm. management, uh, and that's his first. You know, he first waded into this after after this thing happened. Right. And and I think the other problem here is, you know, for the most part, we don't interact with that many state agencies unless we have a special reason to. So if you have a special need and that agency addresses that need, then you do. Other than that, it's like DMV every once in a while. It's the state cops if you get pulled over or, you know, but the lottery, the Connecticut Lottery Corporation, quasi-public, is one where people all the time hand over some money and get a ticket back with the expectation that they're participating in a game that is fairly and competently run, um, and 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 the state depends on these revenues, which are considerable. I mean, a large yeah. amount of money. Yeah, three hundred forty-five you know? million a year. So you do, so you don't want to jeopardize that amount of money by a, a situation where people look at this and go, "Well, is this being done right at all? Would I be better off?" You know, it's it's very interesting. You know, I know a lot of people who play uh, the lottery games and. Trust is by far the most important thing. And yet, even with all of this stuff happening, people play. And so yeah. it's, it's hard f- 
it's it's one of these situations where it's like how do you, the lottery says hey we're breaking records well you know how do you stop niagara falls from right. from flowing i mean who knows exactly if it, if they could be doing better you know with, with revenue i i don't know it's a but you know just for example they were talking about getting rid of the the comical i like them the little ping pong ball machines right, yes. you know? and they were talking about putting it in a random gem- number generator these are, these are the little these are the little yeah. balls that pop up on air currents you know when yeah. you see them yeah. and yeah i thought that was really stupid too because it's like one of the few things that does engender some confidence i know people who actually will stop what they're doing they're mm. playing cards at night no i want to watch the uh, i want to watch the the, the drawing yeah. and it, it even even if you don't watch it knowing that 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 is a harder thing to fix, and right. you know, the, there was a guy out in the Midwest. Um, I forget his name right now. Eddie something weighed like 450 pounds, sat at home, and he hacked into things and created programs for the random gener- number generator. Yeah, to, I mean, to, you, that feels it, hackable. We, and we should say that Governor Lamont has proposed as a middle ground that John be the person who picks up the balls <laughs> and reads the numbers. And I would have more confidence in that if you were to do that. We're going to well, have to I stop there, it. John Linder, but everybody should continue to read uh, John Linder's excellent reporting. By Hartford Current investigative reporter par excellence, uh, keeping them honest in what the weekly go- government watch column. Uh, he's going to be writing about the Connecticut like a lottery corporation, uh, they're going to have to extend his retirement date so he can just continue this story until it, until it ultimately ends with the death of civilization. All right. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. All right. We're going to go to the blackout after this, the New York blackout, with our super young Mod Squad correspondents. All right. So, what, 42 years ago, 1977, there was a massive, massive legendary blackout uh, in the city of New York. Uh, all kinds of things happened. Uh, there were there was culture. There were stories. There were movies, stuff like that. I don't know if what happened this weekend is going to be the same, and it wasn't quite as big of a blackout anyway. It affected just a portion uh, of Manhattan itself. Uh, but we're uh, going to tell you a little bit more about it through the eyes of two exciting young correspondents uh, we have with us uh, from the studios in New York, uh, Brendan J. Sullivan, writer-producer uh, who's toured the world as Lady Gaga's DJ and written about the New York City blackout uh, and has written books, and he's the commissioner of our Song of the Summer program. But before we get to Brendan, it turns out that Carmen Baskoff, who is everywhere all the time, as far as I can tell, uh, where we live producer, was in Manhattan uh, during Saturday evening's blackout. So uh, in your own words, you actually you were at a comedy improv show, I believe? Yes, I was. Yeah. So I'd, I'd gone down with my sister and my roommate, actually, to see uh, some improv comedy um, in Hell's Kitchen and uh, apparently just a block or two from the edge of the blackout. Um, so we'd gone there. Everything was working fine. They were doing the kind of like get inspiration by asking people in the audience weird stuff that happened. And a couple mentioned, oh, there was this blackout at our hotel, and it seemed to have followed us down to the theater. And so they're making a bunch of jokes. The whole sort of comedy show mm-hmm. was around, ha-ha, blackout. And then yeah. <laughs> we all eventually emerged from the theater and realized, oh, there, in fact, is a massive blackout. Right. The actual the city of New York, <laughs> yes-anded you, basically. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, so, and we should say, that, so this is all kind of around the Midtown uh, area uh, of New York. Um, we, we should also say that New York being New York, 
uh, it didn't take this lying down. There are all kinds of impromptu performances going on, including uh, the cast of Town goes out in front of their theater because the theaters, I guess, are kind of emptying out onto the streets. Uh, you're going to hear the legendary and Tony-winning Andre DeShields improvising with the trombone lick that opens a Hades town as this crowd of people are just standing out on the street. All right, so uh, let's go over to uh, Commissioner Brendan uh, J. Sullivan. Uh, you, I believe, as this was happening, were actually departing uh, New, um, Manhattan for one of the yeah. other boroughs, correct? Yes, yes. I was on the train on the bridge when, when uh, right as you get on the over the bridge, sort of everyone pulls out their phone because you have service, and all of a sudden everyone was talking about how the blackout was happening just behind us. So we all cram over to the windows, and it's like, you know, it looks like a, a chunk of the island is missing. Right. What are the differences between then and now? And Carmen, I, I think you participated in this, is, you know, in 1977, we were just kind of relying on news reporting and it was a pretty confusing situation. But everybody has a freaking phone right now. So I saw you, right? You were doing some videos, Carmen? Yeah, yeah. So I actually, for, for most of the time, I was in the blackout zone. My internet on my phone wasn't working, but still had uh, cell text. Uh, so we were calling people who were outside of the blackout zone and getting like reports on like how far the subways were affected. And then um, actually, when I got to the edge of the, the blackout zone, I popped on um, a, a Wi-Fi from one of the stores <laughs> and posted a video. All right. So, cause this, so this is the way that we live now. Um, so, Brendan, as you I mean, the way that you saw it from a train, subway train on a bridge, wink, 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 the things are going out. I mean, that's kind of disaster movie footage in a way. It Did, is. Were you scared at all? Were you I've worried? Survived. I've, I've been through a couple blackouts in New York. Uh, my most recent one was was also the last time I had to go to Bradley Airport, and it was Hurricane Sandy. I was DJing in the Hamptons, and I had to turn right around to get to Canada for a gig, and I was it was like Edmonton, you know, in the middle of nowhere. All the airports were blown out, and uh, so I had to drive to Connecticut, to Bradley Airport, which was the closest airport, and I, I said to myself on the way over, well, you know, I want to see what's going on in Manhattan. I got to see this. So I'm going to drive over the bridge. And I like almost wish I didn't because it is terrifying. You wouldn't think it is because everything's blacked out. So you can't really you would think your car headlights would take care of all that. But people crossing the streets, you can't see them as you would with when there's street lights on. Some people would try and carry a flashlight, but you can sort of only see them then. And you look up and it's just stone. You're just in shadow. And, you know, just being on a side street, it could take you 10 minutes to make a left because no one no one can see you and stop for you. Right. So um, we should say that one of the people who emerged. Uh, well, first of all, we should say that Mayor de Blasio, because he's a candidate for president, was in, in Iowa, at least for the beginning yeah. of this. Right. So um, one of the people who emerged kind of in, in that vacuum is the New York City Council Speaker. Corey Johnson. Let's hear a little bit of Corey Johnson uh, talking to the people on Fox 5. The thing people want is they want accurate, calm, responsibly communicated information to them. And that's what I tried to provide. I was on the phone with the Office of Emergency Management, on the phone with leadership at the MTA, and I was calling the CEO of Con Edison, getting any information I could so that people who were affected by this pretty widespread blackout uh, would know what was going on. 
So, uh, Brendan, did, did Corey Johnson become kind of the, the star of the blackout? He was. He's so, Corey Johnson is such, such a, an important and interesting figure for this, this day and age, a, a millennial politician, a Chelsea resident. That's his neighborhood when he was as a city council member. That was his neighborhood right there, Chelsea, on, on the way up to Midtown. And he has just just sparkled in the last year or so. He is a, you know, a Twitter celebrity every day for the last three months. He's been uh, talking about his quest to quit smoking and the whole thing. You'll you'll look at a backlog there yeah. and you'll see like AOC tweeting at him like, good job, buddy. Keep it up. People just love this guy. Well, he's very open he's, about having quit quit other substances in the past as well, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Which which would ruin someone trying to become mayor of another city. Uh, but he's very open about his HIV status, about his relationship status. And uh it's, he's just a very honest and different kind of candidate. You know, we should say, Carmen, you know, uh, people who don't go to New York a lot, I think they get ideas about what New York is like and whether it's a scary place to be. One thing you saw a lot of was people trying to be helpful, even well, talk, talk about what they were doing with their cell phone lights. Yeah, there was. Uh, so obviously all the traffic lights were out, uh, which is <laughs> potential for a lot of chaos. And there was just a lot of uh, sort of uh, helpful citizen um, volunteers who'd, who'd gone out into the middle of intersections and were using their, you know, cell phone flashlight or cell phone screen kind of to direct traffic and, uh, you know, just sort of taking taking charge and, and leading people. I saw at one point there was two guys. One guy, I think he just got off a bicycle. He was wearing his, like, bicycle helmet. And he's like, maybe we should, you know, switch to the other direction of traffic. And so they were about to do that. And the other guy's like, oh, no, there's some emergency vehicles coming. We better, <laughs> you know, keep traffic moving this way. But it's just like, yeah, people who I guess were in, in place and thought, you know, I can do something to help. And a man giving out ice cream, right? And yeah, yeah. There's an ice cream shop I passed where obviously all their ice cream was melting. So they <laughs> were, uh, you know, sharing sharing ice cream with people coming by. So, Brendan, you know, just to contrast the, that, okay, in 77 when the big blackout hit, first of all, New York was in a lot more trouble. It wasn't a healthy city at that time. You're two years past the famous Ford to NYC drop dead headline, but still problems. And it's just a full, massive blackout. Uh, and, and one of the things, one of the cultural theories that has come out of this is that hip-hop, which was just a barely known name uh, at the time, that, that hip-hop for peculiar reasons, may have gathered momentum and steam uh, as a result uh, of the 77 blackout. Uh, go ahead and say some more about that. Yeah, uh, it was an interesting time in the city. About 5,000 police officers had just been laid off when the city was trying to, you know, right this ship. Um, there was a mayoral election coming up. Uh, and at the same time, you had these, uh, the Bronx disco scene was led by crews of DJs just because of the logistics of it. Two turntables, mixer, big system. These were vinyl records, so you needed a crew of people so you could have those two copies on vinyl. And this is where all of hip-hop culture comes from. So, you know, when you extend the break in the song, when, you know, you, you imagine James Brown going over to the drummer and then in the, you know, saying, hit me, and then the audience is going nuts and you have, instead of guys joining gangs and street gangs, they're in dance crews, and they are trying to see who can dance the best, who can do the best graffiti, who can rhyme the best. And out of that culture came these MCs who would just whip up the crowd in, in classic you know, radio style, you know, just trying to make a little rhyme over the break there. And this would have just kept becoming maybe a little fad, maybe a niche thing, sort of like uh, at the same time in D.C., there was a, a somewhat similar uh, kind of music called called Go Go, Go yeah. Where it's, yeah, the samples from uh, Nelly's Hot in here come from Go Go Records, not from Disco Records. 
So it could have just been another very forgettable music scene full of people you've never heard of from a, a part of the, you know, the Bronx, a place you've never, you would never go, and suburban kids who are their biggest audience wouldn't go. Uh, but then lightning literally struck twice. The blackout of 77, two separate lightning bolts that just cut the city off from all power. And when, when you imagine the people that were affected by this, they were people who, they were kids, these are the, the babies of the baby boom. These are kids who, who are watching TV. They're watching Happy Days, and they see all these happy people in the suburbs. But in the Bronx, their funding is getting cut for schools. And what goes first? It's, of course, music. It's art. So kids who normally might have had another outlet are out in the streets, and they don't have bands. They don't have art, but they do have graffiti, and they do have these parties, which are happening not in big discos or fancy nightclubs. They're happening in parks. You know, people are famously... Uh, if you had a flathead screwdriver, you could pry open the bottom of a streetlight and plug your stereo system into it. Yeah, well, I should so say that, all... that on that night, DJ Grandmaster Kaz and Disco Wiz had done exactly that. They'd plugged their turntables uh, and system in, in, illegally into a light uh, post. And when the blackout hit, they thought they'd done it. Uh, they didn't realize how pervasive <laughs> the blackout was. So imagine their turntable which starts to slow down because there's no power. And then all the lights go out. And they thought they'd knocked out the power. Power, at least in that neighborhood anyway, uh, it took them a while to realize it was way, way bigger than that. <laughs> but the moment after that, I rem- I- I've heard that story too, and I heard they all looked at each other, like, and they looked at their dance audience and said, don't even think about it, and they grabbed their equipment and tried to get out of there. Right. Uh, but all over the city, people were looting, and they were, they were taking, you know, they- imagine just being so angry or being so, having having lived through a city that was defaulted on, where the the president says, drop dead, basically, the famous headline. And all of a sudden, everything you've ever wanted, you know, you turn on TV and it's, you need new clothes, you need a new car, you need this, and there's not even jobs in your neighborhood. And then all of a sudden, the power goes out and the cops are overwhelmed. There would be two and three people handcuffed in the back seat. One detective said they all had TVs on their laps in the back because that was the only way to collect evidence, and they had to put another guy in the trunk. So a lot of the next day, I'm not accusing anyone of looting here. I'm just saying somehow the next day, uh, a lot of DJs, a lot of wannabe DJs finally had two turntables, and a lot of pretty good DJs now had recording equipment, and right. a lot of MCs had a microphone. And other than that, so that's where all our original hip-hop records are coming from. And when you listen to something like you know, Rapper's Delight, which sort of came out of that era, it's a 1979 track from Rhymes in that era, you don't hear people... Uh, emulating their favorite rappers. You hear them talking about themselves. And the next day in New York City, there was sort of a a long extended uh, period of show and tell in the kids in New York City. And again, I'm not accusing anyone of looting. It just seems that everybody's uncle found the perfect pair of shoes in their nephew's niece's nephew's size that day. Well, the DJ Grandmaster Cass himself himself says that he he obtained by looting uh, a mixer that got him. He's, he's the guy who thought maybe he'd cause the blackout once he realized he hadn't. He actually got a mixer out of this whole process. Hey, we're going to have to stop there, uh, but we've had a reporting here from Carmen Baskoff and Brendan J. Sullivan. I would like to point out that their combined ages would still fall short of my age. Uh, I don't know how to feel about that, but uh, uh, excellent reporting uh, from uh, people on the scene in New York City uh, about the blackout. We still don't exactly know 100% what caused this blackout. They say it's not terrorism or anything like that, but so details to come. Uh, We have to take a break, and we will come back, and we will tell you uh, about a whole different subject, that subject being baseball.
Hello? Hello? Is this mic switch on? It's pitch black in here. I can't really read the credits. Uh, today's show is produced by Sarah Bareilles. Could that be right? Sandra Bull. Scott Breedy. That's who it must be. And me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Jesse Steinmetz and Carolyn McCusker. The part of Brian Cranston was played by Benedict Cumberbatch. That also seems very wrong. Anyway, tomorrow's show is about snot. No, sand. Okay, I gotta go. I'm okay. All right. It was very dark in there. We had a little little blackout of our own. Uh, so joining us now, uh, well, let me just sort of set this up to say that, for example, uh, quite recently in London, uh, the, for the first time ever, um, uh, there was a major league, two major league baseball games between the Yankees and the Red Sox. Uh, much uh, excitement about that. But the first of those games wound up being, I believe, the third longest uh, nine-inning baseball game in the history of Major League Baseball. It took a really long time to watch. And it's things like that that have caused our, our next guest, Dave Zirin, political sports writer, sports editor at The Nation, and host of its Edge of Sports podcast, to wonder uh, if that has anything to do or what has anything to do with what appears to be a declining audience for baseball. Uh, Dave Zirin, welcome back to our show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, so set this up a little bit more for us. Um, you're uh, you're asking this question about declining enthusiasm for the former national pastime. Why? Well, because Gallup took a poll about is baseball your favorite sport, and it received the lowest numbers since Gallup started asking the question, which was during the Great Depression. So we're going back over eighty years. Baseball's never had a lower number of sport. It's nine percent of people in the United States uh, believe that baseball is their favorite sport. I mean, you put that up against uh, football, which is uh, in the high thirties, for example. I mean, it's not even in the same stratosphere. Uh, making it even more difficult for baseball is the percentage of fans who are over age fifty-five has never been higher. Uh, the percentage of fans who are under eighteen have never been. So statistically, it's trending wrong in every conceivable direction. And that, I think, should provoke a great amount of existential worry for the future of the sport. But it doesn't seem to, right? For example, everybody knows the games are too long. One of Major League Baseball's tweaks was to knock literally five seconds off the period between innings, the changeover between innings. I mean, five seconds is not going to fix a problem that we might call four-hour baseball games. No, it's not going to fix the problem, particularly when baseball games a generation ago uh, were roughly an hour shorter than they are now. I mean, and so we could talk about all the reasons why games are, some of it is commercialism, some of it is the way the game is coached and the way the game is played, pitching changes. There are all sorts of things that have made it a longer product, but this longer product, 162 games a year, um, for more people seems like a chore than it does an act of fun. And one of the things that provoked me to write this article wasn't just my own dwindling enthusiasm for a sport that I was obsessed with growing up. Um, it's also because some of the great uh, profilers of the sport, some of the great champions of the sport, people like Tim Kirkchin over at ESPN, who's been a diehard baseball fan for 60 years. He likes to point out that he went to Walter Johnson High School in, uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. That's how much of a fan he is. Uh, he said he's never enjoyed the sport uh, less. 
uh, uh, that he's just he's, he's unhappy watching the sport. This this wouldn't and, be and a these th- kinds of things have provoked me to want to ask these questions. So this wouldn't be a Dave Zirin interview without us asking about the latent politics and economics of this. One of the reasons ah. that they're not in a hurry to fix this. This is the engine light blinking on the dashboard saying yeah. go get service immediately. But they don't really have to do this because of the way their industry is structured. Say more exactly. about that. Exactly. It's hard to think of a business that's sort of more awash in corporate welfare than Major League Baseball. Uh, Whether you're talking about uh, the amount of money that's received for stadiums, whether you're talking about public subsidies, or whether you're talking about uh, sweetheart cable deals that they get uh, because uh, local cable companies are in so much regional partnership now and they're not shown on regular television. And those those can be as much as billion-dollar deals as it is for the Los Angeles Dodgers, or even $100 million deals as it is in smaller markets like Baltimore. So they're getting all of this money um, infused into their system. And so they're saying, hey, why should we change anything? You know, we're, we're, we're riding fat on the hog here with all the money that's coming in uh, through public subsidies and through the cable deals. But what they're, what they're not looking at and what they need to be looking at is where is the fan enthusiasm for people who aren't going to be accepting Social Security in a few years. That should be their bigger concern, because if there's one thing we know about sports history in this country, it's that what is is not always what will be. Uh, there were times where boxing and horse racing, these were the most popular sports in the country. Sports have cycles. Sports can come and go. And I don't think Major League Baseball is taking it nearly seriously enough, the kind of precipice that they're facing. I just want to uh, put a little asterisk on one thing you said. It's hard to think of a sport that's uh, or an activity that's more gets, gets more corporate welfare than a major league baseball. I would uh, nominate minor league baseball, where uh, I live in Hartford, uh, where the city mm-hmm. built them a stadium. But the owners of the minor league baseball teams they don't even have to pay salaries to uh, to players. Those are all played mm-hmm. by the paid by the major league teams. You just collect money if you are a minor league yeah. baseball owner. Somebody else builds you a stadium and pays for it, and you just collect money. So that's it's. It's an even better deal. But it, it does feel as though there's some kind of cliff that they'll hit or some point of diminishing returns anyway. This is a boring game. The games go on way too long. Uh, I mean, I love baseball, too. I was trying to watch the Red Sox-Dodgers game last night, although it was five hours and 40 minutes in extra innings, and I did give up. But, I mean, at some point, they, something will grab them by the shoulders. And, and what do they do then, Dave? Exactly. But the question is going to be, will it be too late by that point? Because you're absolutely right. At some point, uh, the cable companies are going to be seeing too many diminishing returns. There's already far less of an appetite among the populace to be paying for these stadiums than there was a generation ago. So they are going to hit these diminishing returns. And then there's going to have to be in a real rush to ask themselves, how can we have a product that's consistently entertaining and consistently roughly two and a half hours long? And they're going to have to come up with some drastic changes to what is a sport, more than any other, that's so deeply tied to tradition and to the way things have always been. Right. And one of the things I think that they think that they've done, I mean, I think most of us are pretty comfortable with the idea that the ball is juiced right now. The ball is jumping out of ballparks at unprecedented rates. And Major League Baseball has sort of kind of said, yeah, kind of, there is maybe a difference in the ball, but not really. Or they have been very muddy about this whole thing. But the notion that dingers, you know, are going to mesmerize us forever. I mean, all home runs kind of look the same as opposed to like a triple, which looks really different or a stolen base or something like that. 
Exactly. And by juicing the ball, which they have assuredly done, uh, what they've done is that they've changed strategies by major league managers who say, well, what's the point in doing a sacrifice bunt? What's the point in sacrificing an out to move a base stealer along? What's the point in risking an out by stealing a base if you could clear all the bases with just one swing? So you not only have more home runs, you have more strikeouts, less fielding opportunities, and lower batting averages. And all of these things work together to create a different kind of a sport. I think it changes the psychology of the players, too. Everybody thinks that he's Aaron Judge. It's appropriate for Aaron Judge to swing really hard at everything because a lot of those things are going to go out. But last night I watched the Red Sox get up in the eighth, and the first two batters hit home runs on the first pitch that they got. The next three batters, you know, made no attempt to do anything other than, than, I mean, the, the fever had gotten into them. It's hard to tell a baseball player not to swing for the bleachers. Right, especially when they're getting managerial approval to do it. I think, this, I mean, I'm going to sound very old right now, but I think some of the, the real old school managers, like the Billy Martins of the world, must be turning over in their graves at not seeing stolen bases, hit and runs, uh, ground ball pitchers. That's another thing that's going the way of the dinosaur the idea of the beautiful junk ball pitcher who can uh, get, get other teams up star players to hit in the double plays all of these things that were staples of the sport they've changed which is why like people like myself who want to see a, a change in the sport sometimes we're referred to as radicals and not traditionalists when i think we're the actual traditionalists because <laughs> we want to return the game to a degree to what it was while i think the owners who are juicing the ball are the real radicals yes all right we're gonna have to stop there but read more of dave Zirin, a political sports writer sports editor at the nation listen to his podcast the Edge of Sports podcast. Uh, check this uh, piece out in the nation that inspired all this. And thanks to everybody who worked on today's show, especially Scott Breedy, who got it all together for us uh, on a very busy Sunday. 